Welcome to Dwyer. This is a music podcast. I'm Matt Dwyer. And speaking of music, that song that played me in is entitled I Want to Hold Your Hand. It is from the album Success, which is Oneida's new album, and that'll be out August 19th on Joyful Noise. All links to Oneida are in the show notes. That comes out August 19th. You can pre-order it now, unless you're listening to this episode in the future, then you could just go buy it. August 19th, the album is Success. Links in the show notes. It's a great album. I've been a fan of Oneidas for a long time. I'm honored to have Bobby Matador on the show today. It's going to be great. This is a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to him. I And we also, we talked about, um, he wrote his college thesis paper on Cleveland punk, and we talk a lot about Cleveland punk, and we discuss a band. I asked him one of the bands that no one's ever heard of. He mentioned The Mice. I've been listening to The Mice pretty consistently now ever since. I put a link to their one of their songs in the show notes um, because they're like circa 86. I don't know. It's pretty cool. It's pretty great. I think you'll enjoy it. I enjoy it. Uh, also, Bobby Matador from Oneida has another band called New Pope. I put uh, They're also great. I put a link to their band camp in the show notes. And... All things Oneida are in the show notes, as well as this conversation was a two-part conversation. Um, You could go and watch the video of the entire conversation unedited on my Patreon for $5 a month. There's also a part one and a part two. The part one, which you're listening to now, also on, but on my Patreon, that has some bonus five minutes or so. But then there's an extra half hour that lives solely on my Patreon for Patreon subscribers. Go to themattdwyer.com, become a Patreon subscriber for five bucks a month. You get bonus episodes, you get episodes early. Uh, you get, like, most of my episodes have two parts. Um, I do, sometimes I interview comedians on there and talk about music, blogs, you name it. There's a lot of stuff. I have over 300 episodes. There's a lot of cool shit up there. Become a Patreon subscriber. That helps support my podcast and helps help me keep going as well if you can't afford five bucks a month i totally get it telling your friends about the podcast would be pretty great and something else i have something coming up i want to really announce but i can't quite do it yet because it's not solidified but it is in conjunction with the climate emergency fund who's i've been working with a bit lately and i don't know how much you've been paying attention to the climate crisis but it's fucking bad and the epa has been gutted by the supreme court and no longer can uh monitor carbon emissions by, say, the evil fucking oil companies. So now those bastards can pump whatever they want into the air willy-nilly. That's not good for my kids. I have two kids who I'd like to see grow up to as adults, but clock is ticking on climate crisis. So please donate to the Climate Emergency Fund. The link is in the show notes. I'm also working with them and filmmaker Adam McKay about something I will be announcing shortly That's music-based. Really cool. Can't quite say what it is yet, but it's going to be fucking awesome. And I'll keep you posted. You can follow me on social media. It's all at themattdwyer.com. I believe that is everything. Please, 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 please check the show notes. There's all kinds of stuff always in the show notes, links. um, And buy this new Oneida album, Success, out August 19th. It's great. There's two songs up there right now, one which you just heard a little snippet of, and you're about to hear a little bit more in the transition. Please enjoy my conversation with Bobby Matador. (laughs) 
so I, I moved from the West coast when I was a little kid, my parents moved, um, moved East to ultimately to new England, a stop along the way in Wisconsin, just enough to make me a green Bay Packers fan. Then <laughs> my wife is a, her family's Packers, but we're in Wisconsin. Uh, a little town called Oconomowoc, about halfway between Madison and Milwaukee. Uh, um, so I got like a weird one little imprint there for a few years. And then, yeah. And then, uh, New England. And then I left New England to go to college and at Oberlin. And then I left Oberlin to be a dropout in Austin. And then I <laughs> went, went back to Oberlin and got a diploma because they're, they're the kind of school that allows you to write to your advisor from Austin, Texas and be like, I think I want to do a research project on punk rock and get a degree. And they're like, okay. <laughs> Did you really do that? Yeah, I did. I did a, I did a research project on like a 75 page thesis on underground and punk music in Cleveland in the early seventies. Oh, solely based on Cleveland. Yeah. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. And there was not a lot of a, you know, this would have been 1994 and 95. So there wasn't like, um, with the exception of one book by uh, Clinton Halen called the, from the velvets to the voidoids, there really was nothing published. So it was a lot of like work and, you know, hearing from someone, Oh yeah, Scott Krauss from Perubu is he works at record revolution, you know? So then it was like, go to all the record stores and talk to the old rockers. And then they'd be like, well, Charlotte Pressler is at university of Buffalo. Do you email? And I was like, what's email? <laughs> so my first, my first emails ever were, uh, were in 1994 and five, like, to people trying to get info for this project. <laughs> That's fucking wild. Who else did you yeah. talk to? Um, I talked to a bunch of people and exchanged also some emails with David Thomas from Perubu, but actually like the most, um, like the biggest sort of fountain of information and the kind of hub that I got stuff from was um, Jim Jones, who was, uh, briefly the bass player in Perubu in like sort of late seventies, kind of Perubu Mark two, um, and had a band, another band called tripod Jimmy. Um, and, uh, and he, he just was like, boom, here's the deal. Here's the deal. And he laid out so much stuff for me and helped me then, you know, connect with people who were, who were nice and exchanged some emails, but he like spent time. And then he hooked me up with this guy, um, named Jim Kleinfelter, who was not a musician, but had been like in the scene and had, he was just one of those collector types who had kept fucking everything. So not only like singles and zines, he had all the Klee magazine zines and stuff, but um, he had this collection of cassettes for, that were, that were like live shows from the time. So I have this cool, and he, he dubbed them all for me on cassette. So I have this cool collection of like television live at the Piccadilly Inn in, you know, the Cleveland suburbs in like 1974 and stuff like that from this guy, Jim Kleinfelter. Wow. Um, That's yeah. fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah. And they gave me a diploma. I got, I got my diploma. <laughs> was there I mean, and I earned it. I don't, I don't feel like it was a scam, you know, but it was like, I, I left school and was like, I can't do school anymore. Um, and then it was like, well, maybe I can get in touch, you know, like small, like weirdo liberal arts college is like 
there's nothing to lose by being like, I propose this project. And you know, I had an awesome advisor who was like, I know nothing about this. He was like a film studies professor who was in the same, the history department that I was in. And he was like, I know nothing about any of this. It sounds really interesting. Go for it. <laughs> that is why, what made, what drew you to the, Oh, the, that scene specific. Was there anything specific? Well, that, because that Oberlin's right outside Cleveland. Right. So, you know, and I, I loved the music that I knew, you know, like I loved Perubu and, and what I had sort of, you know, gleaned about Rocket from the Tombs. But like, so Rocket from the Tombs, which is like one of my favorite bands of all time, um, you could not get that music. Like it had been collected in this like edition of 500, you know, a, a record with 500 copies got made back in the mid eighties. So I had to go out to, um, Bowling Green, Bowling Green state university, which is out like outside of Toledo. They had, I, I don't know if they still do, but they had like a world renowned pop culture research library. And they had that record. They had a copy. So this is like, I, I you can, couldn't get on the internet. There's no, you know, there's no way to get this music digitally. There was no sort of the only bootleg culture was, you know, like stuff that had some sort of modest popularity. So like, there's just no way to get this stuff, or at least not for me as a 21 year old. Um, so I road tripped out to Bowling Green a couple times and listened to records and read zines and it was cool. It was such a, such a good way to finally be like, all right, I finished school in like a way that kind of worked. <laughs> That's amazing to me. <clears throat> Were there any bands? Cause I talked to, uh, I've talked to a couple, I can't, Dylan, I'm totally flaking on the fucking band he's with and they're pretty popular. I'm a dumbass, but anyway, <laughs> that's okay. My brain, my brain's working on the same set of wavelengths. So. Um, I, I'm going to kick myself afterwards anyway, but he was saying that there's a lot of bands that never leave like Cleveland, but they're like just as influ like influential as, and almost like they're rock stars in Cleveland, but they're like, yeah, I'm not going to fucking leave here. And that's all they ever want to yeah. do. So stuff in the eighties that was, so my, my like research project and thesis was about the kind of like, I did include like the dead boys. So I kind of got to like 1977, 78, but there was stuff that then happened in the very end of the seventies through the eighties that I, I think like does fit that bill. So like the pagans were like a big ass punk band in Cleveland. But I, and I think like real punk rockers are like, Oh yeah, yeah, of course they're canonical. But like, you know, I'm not like a, a, hardcore lower lower age hardcore you know just adjective um punk guy i mean I, I i have knowledge and i have love for that stuff but i'm not like a diehard in the punk community but i i think those folks know a lot about the pagans but yeah they were huge in cleveland i mean huge you know um <laughs> understood the matter like who's who's huge really ever um and then in the 80s stuff like yeah like like the kind of indie stuff in Cleveland was pretty obscure. I think outside of Cleveland, like death of Samantha and my dad is dead. And, um, a band, I was actually just talking to somebody about, uh, this band, the mice, um, who put out a record an LP and an EP in the mid eighties. And they're amazing. And the, the guy whose band it was, it's like a, it's sort of like pop. It's like guitar power, pop punk indie, like, most amazing songs and nobody's ever, 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 ever heard of this band outside of Cleveland. And maybe they've heard of Bill Fox, who was the sort of like reclusive 
singer who just like grumpily quit music or maybe not grumpily, but, but you know, <laughs> he, he released a couple like impossibly obscure things in the nineties and then just, just gone. But that band is amazing. And people, you talk to people in Cleveland, they were, they were like a hot band uh, at that time, but yeah, not beyond there. That always, I don't know. That always breaks my heart a little bit when you hear about bands like that. And, but it's also, that's, uh, you know, it's, that's the moment, I guess. And it's gone. Yeah. And there's just so much that doesn't, I, you know, it's so, it's so fucking weird trying to figure out like, how does, how does some things break out into a wider consciousness and others not like, you know, there's so many things that I'll listen to and be like, this is a perfect record that like, you know, had its moment. It's not like, you know, I'm not like a collector of, pure obscure obscure <laughs> stuff but like you can hear things and be like this is incredible how could this not connect with a wider audience and that is such a an alchemy that like i long ago just accepted like eh, i don't get it don't understand yeah um, there's always hope that somebody and i did, real quick it was it, cloud nothing still in from the cloud nothings i wanted to get make sure to give that <laughs> credit <'cause> that <laughs> moment yeah <laughs> But like, you know, like they're like the MC five, nobody like in their time, they huge in Detroit had their thing, but like it took years for people to catch up to what the fuck they were doing. Yeah. Although at least the rock press was writing about them. True. Uh, on True. some level, you know, like, like, like there's, there's so much more out there now and it's cool. I was going through, um, cleaning up some stuff in the basement of, couple of months ago and pulled out some big tubs i have just of old like magazines and zines that are not you know some of them have like oneida clippings in them some of them i just have because they were cool and i was like oh yeah remember magazines <laughs> like like it was so it was incredible to me i was like look at all of these like little publications um you know that that people poured their lives into and they contain so much information about bands and because of the like curation process of the magazine like it has they often have personalities and i'm not even talking about like zines little local zines i mean you know the, the kind of independent music press um and it's really you know it's so easy to lament things that are gone but it was more like i hadn't really re just recalled the experience of reading through like shredding paper you know, like, like just going through a magazine and being like, oh yeah, this band was great. Hey, I don't know this band. Like they're on the other page and the same person's writing about them, like connect, connect, connect. And obviously a large amount of that is filled through online, you know, online life, but magazines, I think because of the, like, um, the sweat equity that goes into them yeah. and the risk people are taking by publishing them, there's like a little more. I don't know. They, they land a little, a little more intensely for me anyway. Part of that's probably just age and I can be cool with that. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a different process to discover music. Like I remember like you'd go to the record store and I wouldn't know what the fuck, like I knew like, Ooh, that's punk, but I didn't really know what it was. Cause I'm probably, I'm 53. So I'm guessing I'm older than I'm, you. I'm 48. Yeah. You're five years older than me. Uh, thank you for the math. Cause I probably couldn't have figured that out. And I mean that seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing shade, man. Nice. <laughs> but uh you know or just like sort of hearing something like now it's just baffling to me it's like oh you could just go listen to something in two seconds where yeah it was like labor to figure something out back then right 
and 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 some of that is just a massive improvement right like like i was talking about um about rocket from the tombs or like um electric eels are another band that were a similar situation for me when i was in college trying to do this research project right like i knew about them but god i could not like get the music and then eventually did you know like but you know through like real challenging work right whereas i could have been like i could have been like let me just find this online. But so somebody has to put it up there. But now that it's like all out there, it's right. It's like, we're all sitting in the library of Alexandria and that's amazing. <laughs> um, but, but the act of curation um, is really important. It's more important now, right? You could listen to everything. So who's, who's offering you like a curation of things and, and, you know, how do you know them? And if it's like Spotify algorithms or YouTube algorithms, right. There's like a, a, a lot of stuff that gets left out of that to say the least. <laughs> and I won't pretend to understand all those algorithms. Right. So like the human curation is really important. So that's where like, you know, blogs and online publications are fabulous, but because there's no like, <laughs> bar to entry they can just become like vehicles for anything so it's harder to sort through right as opposed to some crazy motherfucker or a couple of motherfuckers like putting together their magazine i'm like and like a lot of them you're like yep that's not for me right but at the same time the 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 human connection there. It's a similar to record stores. I still love going to record stores. I mean, there's a record store right near us where I live in Boston, which is like, you know, you go and you just listen and you talk and you hang out. It's not like only about buying music and it never has been. It gives you an opportunity to talk through stuff. And then someone might be like, Oh my God, you've never heard the, the, you know, spirit album, like the fourth spirit album. Oh, let's put it on. Right. And it's like, no, I would never like, I can find that online if I want, but like, <laughs> no one, I need, I need somebody's enthusiasm or belief in something to like, get me to give a crap. Yeah. When I moved to Echo Park in LA, when I first moved there, there was a record shop called Sea level records where I bought my first Oneida CD just for the record. Oh, great store then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought, but it was like, it was the hub of the neighborhood. And like you would go in there and you would always know yeah. somebody and you would, I would go in there for like, with the intent of being there for five minutes and I'd spend three hours there talking yeah. about music, going through stuff. And he had a lot of vinyl, even when that wasn't on the resurgence yet, which was kind of crazy, but, and it was so crucial to my, I feel like I learned more about music in my time in that neighborhood than I had my entire life because I had that community that it's crucial. Yeah. And I mean, those there's online communities that are great too. And like really work for people. Um, I have a hard time just personally spending that much time on screen <laughs> for a while. I was, I was sort of a, you know, a dilettante on like a music board where I, I kind of appreciated people's opinions and, and enjoyed reading it. And I still drop in time to time to lurk and see what folks are talking about. But I found that the, just uh, like no judgment, but for me, the, the, um, in-person human interaction is more interesting because it puts me in a different, like literal physical space, um, which seems to have some kind of, you know, that has a reaction to me, but I'm not a digital native and digital natives, you know, 
have their own ways of getting that same input. So <laughs> yeah, I, maybe that's it. Cause I, like you said, 94 was the first time I didn't send emails until like 99. <laughs> was like, and I was just like, what the fuck is this? Like it was, yeah. but, uh, what was, what was, cause all these bands like the Ohio and the punk, what was the music that pulled you into sort of that direction? Uh, probably the first Perubu album and per, there's a collection of their, so that's, um, the modern dance. And then there's a collection of Perubu singles, uh, called terminal tower, um, that are their singles from like 75 and 76. And I mean, those records are like perfect records for me. Um, and that was like, Oh, this is the best music ever. And it's from right here. And it has a backstory and, oh my God, there's a band before. And like, I got to find, you know, so that pulled me into like trying to figure out what, what had gone on. And then it was like the more digging, you know, it, it connected forwards to stuff, you know, that I knew about, right. It was like, oh, Devo was from Akron and Chrissy Hind was from Akron and they're part of this world, you know, like bro broadly speaking. Right. And so it was like, it had threads into stuff I already knew, but like threads that just went everywhere. But yeah, like I'll, you know, like literally anytime I see a copy of the modern dance, on LP, I buy it. I mean, unless it's like crazy, crazy expensive, but if I find that record somewhere, I'll just buy it and I'll give it to somebody. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> I mean, dude, it's, it's too good. <laughs> and it's still good, right? It was, it was brilliant when it was made. It was brilliant when I, I learned about it. And then lo and behold, um, a year or two, after so Peru had like a comeback a couple of comeback albums in the in the late 80s early 90s um and they actually came and played at Oberlin when I was there opening for the Pixies um wow and and I was like wait like Peru is still in existence and like making a really different kind of music by 1993 92 that's when i first actually heard of them yeah so um and it was but i was like holy shit they were so good and since then i've seen that band a million times and it's like um you know it's like the fall or james brown where it's like the like david thomas in perubu is to me sort of the least the least essential part of the band audio wise. Like I, you know, I, his lyrics are pretty interesting and his voice is really an acquired taste that hits me right. But like, it's cool. But, uh, but it's like, as the band has for, uh, has formed and reformed and swirled around, like it's always remained interesting. Like I'll say anybody who ever has the chance to go see Peru, just go see that band. Like it, it's always good. You know, and that, that's it. like, there's just, there's nothing like that. There's so little, I, obviously Oneida, <laughs> the fall, you know, before Marky Smith died. Right. Like, but it's, it's cool to be like, that is a people making interest. I think wire maybe is similar, yeah. right? It's like, it's sort of like we are doing our thing and it's always going to be interesting and maybe you'll be this interested or maybe you'll only be this interested, but like, <laughs> Uh, you know, that's just amazing to me. 
do, what do you think the recipe is if that's the proper way for a band being able to do that because you and like you said Oneida I know you said it a little bit jokingly but 20 <laughs> something 20 years over 20 years right uh 25 this is this is yeah we have our, our record our record that's coming out success is our, our 25th anniversary record right <laughs> and you can see we like to have our cake and eat it to be uh be be you know no no we're just joking or are we right you know um but yeah, no, it's, it's uh yeah, we've been, we've been doing it a long time. And in a, in a, I would say in a different form than, than a lot of the, the acts I just named, because for us, it's the same, we, you know, we've had little bits of subtraction and addition, but it's really a communal and collective effort. It's not a, there's not like a single mind that drives it. It's a really a, a hive mind kind of situation and it, that shifts around, but it's been really collaborative. Um, and yeah, I have no idea how managed to be the trick. other than the fact that we're not afraid to talk to each other and it's funny you read like you read like rock bios of bands and like you're like then then you know like these two people stop talking to each other and then it all fell apart you know yeah but so probably keep talking to each other <laughs> sort of like a marriage <laughs> you know 20, not always going to be perfect yeah i mean 25 years to keep and to still be great i mean i've I heard an advanced copy of the album it's great and it's just that's impressive like Deerhoof is also 30 years yeah. it's like it's fucking but it's like why those guys and like then everybody else is like three albums and they're fucking toast <laughs> um I, you know there's a there's a bunch of different ingredients i'm being a little glib saying like just talk to each other right like um we have all been comfortable with like self-defining success for, for ourselves. Um, right. Rather than trying to fit into another mold. And we all have things in our life, whether it's other musical projects or outside things that like create meaning and value in our lives. So we can sustain a creative effort through the like troughs and the disappointments and the frustrations because, it's not like, Oh, now we're not, now we're not going to be huge. Fuck it. You know, like that was actually kind of always understood. Um, and we have all here and there done different things to, you know, accept the concept of day jobs or making ends meet or, you know, doing what we need to do to sustain our lives outside the band, which then takes a bunch of pressure off. Um, like we're much more free to kind of make things happen the way we want them to happen. And we do honestly like <laughs> believe in ourselves and what we're doing, but it's, uh, we've put ourselves in a position where like the world doesn't have to agree with us. <laughs> was that always sort of the plan with the band of like, this is how we're going to be or, or has that changed over the years? I, I wouldn't say it's changed, but I also wouldn't call it a plan. I would say it was kind of an unspoken understanding that gradually morphed into like a, something we've kind of hashed out and talked through. Like for me personally, um, I, like it was clear from pretty young that the most important thing for me was playing music. Like, um, that was always the, the idea for me. Um, but when I like got out of college and 
you know, I was like, all right, I need a job. So I got like an, I got an internship, uh, at the New York times to write, um, with the jazz critic of the time, Peter Watrous to like write about music and jazz. And I got a, a paid day job at this record label, uh, this Italian like avant jazz label called black saints, actually two labels, black saint and soul note. That's funny. Um, I just read about black saint the other day because they named it after Mingus's album. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great label. Cool people. I was the publicity coordinator at the U S office. Um, first, you know, gig. And I was like, sweet, I'm going to make my life in music. And then, and I was right. I wrote a couple reviews for a, a magazine. Um, and then I was like this, it was like, not what I wanted. It turned out <laughs> right. Like the boundaries between that and making music were too blurry for me. And I stuck with the job at the label for a couple of years. Cause I liked the people I worked with. I liked the music and I was getting paid. Um, but eventually I jumped ship and just started like working at a photo studio, like filling print orders, you know, like, and then eventually moved into office temping because it was easier for me. Like I found that if I worked my 40 hours and got paid and could afford to live in New York and then evenings and nights were playing music, like the way we wanted to like that music was so much more compelling and like independently derived and, you know, a product of this little community that we built rather than a product of like the whole overwhelming architecture of our lives. Um, and that model has worked really well for me to keep those, those lives compartmentalized. Um, so now I teach middle school. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. And it's great. And I have, uh, I have vacations and can tour. Yeah, so. that's perfect. I, <laughs> I know a couple other people who do the same thing and it's like, it's I, I, ideal. And you probably have health insurance, which, you know, yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> right. Well, exactly. And that's what I mean, right? Like, like all of those, to put all of those real life pressures in like to weave that into a creative endeavor is, is creates all kinds of complexities and contradictions that like, I feel like, Oh, I kind of found a way out of that. That's really working for me. It's different for other people too. I'm not like, I wouldn't prescribe this, you know, it's more just like, it's, it's what has worked for me. And then for some of the other members of Oneida as well. Um, and you know, that's, that's like, here we are. Um, but you know, everybody I work with knows, I mean, I, they know, like, if I have to choose, I'm out. <laughs> Your students know? Do that? Are you like the cool? Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. They know, but you know, they're like 13, 14. So they only occasionally do they care? They really care if it's like during class and they see an opportunity to steer the conversation. So like, if they want to talk about the band, I'm like, let's talk at four 30. <laughs> and they never want to talk at four thirty. <laughs> I'm curious. Well, you know, everything's online, so they'll go and find me. Are there any songs with the lyrics? They're like, hey. I mean, <laughs> there are those oh, songs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Has anyone has anyone had the the, the guts to talk to me about it? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was curious cause you said you wrote reviews and it, having been on both side of music reviews, do you have any uh, take on music re reviews or do you don't give a fuck? Um, 
I mean, it's not that I don't give a fuck. I have no interest in writing them. Um, I find, I find criticism really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I find like journalism that involves, whether it's investigative or like historical or, you know, critical, like I find that really interesting. Um, like the idea of reviews are, they can be all over the map. I don't have a problem with it as a concept. Sometimes it's really, really obviously in my experience, like a quick thing that really doesn't have a reason to exist, even if it's, even if it's positive, <laughs> you know, but like, I mean, there's certainly, if there's a really positive review that like, that, that I see, like that always feels good. Right. But you can only allow it to feel a little bit good because otherwise then the ones that don't, you know, you can't be like this person really gets it. I'm awesome. And like that person's just a fucking tool, man. You know, like that's there, there's a, you can't live with that logic. So, um, and you know, like music can unfold slowly and writing record reviews or music reviews doesn't mesh well with a slow measured relationship to the music, you know? So I'm not saying some people don't do that. Like they can, that's what I'm saying. It's not like there's a thing that's inherently wrong with it, but because of that, um, it's not, I don't like, I don't really read, for instance, I don't really read like music reviews online, like regardless of Oneida. Um, but I'll read like, interesting journalistic articles or critical things that are going to be like, all right, let's take a, let's take an approach to something or like, you know, comparative criticism or something like can be, can be really interesting and compelling if I'm in the mood. Yeah. Damon Krakowski, I hope I got his last name right from galaxy 500, writes Some really great stuff. Yeah. His book on sound, um, is fantastic. I've read some articles on about from him about this similar and like mono and my, I mean, I was just, yeah. I read it and I was like, I don't know fucking anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what was cool. So I, I, I read his book and, and, uh, it was like a lot of it. I was like, well, yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah. And then some of it, I was like, Oh, interesting. And then I realized afterwards, I was like, well, the stuff that seems not like devastatingly obvious, but the stuff that, that like spoke to me so naturally, I was like, well, yes, of course. And then moved on. What was really happening was he was writing very simply and approachably about some things that for me, like I understood, but had been ineffable up until that point. Right. So like, I think his book is remarkable because it communicates stuff that a lot of us who work in music and sound like we know, but couldn't articulate or haven't articulated effectively and clearly. And that's a short book that I would recommend like to anyone who's interested in thinking about what they hear, because it really is a, 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 a fabulous piece of communication. That I, makes sense. I'm going to buy that when we get off, off this. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that was a good, I get, I get my nickel kickback, right? <laughs> I just, it's interesting because I've written reviews and I've been in shows that have been reviewed. And like once I, and I solely was writing them because they paid me and I was fucking broke and I was like, okay. But I, yeah. I found him. I just, I don't like most people try to inject their person, like make it about them and their opinion. And I'm like, that's not what you're supposed to do. And that drives me fucking insane. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, 
Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely out there. I do. So the place that I was writing for, so I was, I was interning at the times. I was not doing any writing for them. I was writing for the guy who I was interning with, you know, would ask me to review something and then he would give me feedback, not as a publication thing. But so then I was writing record reviews for this very short lived magazine called ah, the new review of music, I think, or something like that. It was in New York. That sounds heady. Uh, and I, it wasn't. Um, and I, I, I only did, I only put stuff in one issue. I did like two or three record reviews and I was in the office, right? It had an office, Tribeca. Um, and I was in the office and the, the editor, who is the guy who had, 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 you know, hooked me up with this job was talking to one of the other writers and he had like made some edits to one of her reviews. It was, I, I remember this, it was a review of the Boss Hog album. Um, and he had like, he had condensed and he had like edited for clarity and she was so mad. And she was like, she was like, this is my art. And that was when it like clicked for me. I was like, this was not like, I did not want writing reviews to be my art like at all. <laughs> and I was like, no, I think I actually have a calling for towards something. I should really probably get to work on that, you know? <laughs> um, and you know, bless her and bless him and everybody who was at that publication. I have no, I, I wasn't like, these people are so stupid, you know, but it was more just like, that is not for me. And I said, here are my reviews and I'm out. <laughs> when you, I don't even know if they got published. I got paid though. <laughs> that's really all. That's why you did it. Uh, when you went to Austin, was that to pursue music or was that for other reasons? Um, sort of. So it was like, we had been, I had been playing music with some friends in, in college and like not, I was not like connecting with academia successfully. Um, I mean, I was getting like decent grades, but like I was not, it was just not happening for me. So all I wanted to do was play. And, but I, it also like that conflict was, was I realized like after the fact was like really kind of undermining my overall mental health and well being And the fact that I don't know if you know about Northeastern Ohio, but like also the sun never shines um, from Illinois. So yeah, I get so, that. Yeah. But right up there on Lake Erie, like the sun never shines. And so I think that was probably part of it. And certainly I was not living the cleanest, healthiest life possible. So all of those factors, just everything kind of collapsed. And it actually, I was at, um, it was Thanksgiving break. I was home for Thanksgiving break and I went and saw Yola Tango play at CBGB. This would have been like 93. Um, and it was such an incredible show. Like it was just so amazing. And I, I was like, it just kind of was, it was like the last straw, you know, the last like support got kicked out from underneath me. I was like, fuck this. I'm not going back to school. Um, and my parents whom I love very much and who have been very kind, thoughtful people through my whole life were like, okay, don't go back to school, get some sleep. And then, <laughs> you know, a, f a few days later, right. Cause I came home at, you know, eight in the morning and was like, I'm not fucking going back to college, you know, thanks. And then they were like, well, you know, we do have the loans and everything. Maybe you should go. They were like, drop a class, see what credits you can earn and then, and then leave. And I was like, oh, all right. And I went and 
punted my way through a, a semester. Um, but so moving to Austin was really about like, I just need to get separate from everything. And I moved, I left school along with a guy I had been playing music with who also was not relating well to school. And we did not end up playing any music while we lived down there. Um, we ended up working and drinking malt liquor and being very, very, very broke and going to see a ton of shows. And um, it was like just this kind of punctuation mark. And I came back like I said, I, you know, I, I proposed this way of like doing a research project, getting my degree. And I came back to school the next fall and was like, cool, I can get my degree. I can do this project around music. All I want to do is play music. I can make it work. It was like a, it's just like a giant timeout, um, that worked. Austin in that era, that must've been like scratch acid, the dicks, any of those bands? Uh, a little after that. Uh, well, a little after that, there was not, there was not a lot of Austin stuff that I was seeing either at the time. Um, but you know, everybody played Austin. (laughs) (laughs) And, and it was the, the, you know, the, the biggest club down there still around emos, like emos was free. That club was free. So like you could go (laughs) be a band and it was fucking free. And because they made money on drinks, like no shit. That's amazing. <laughs> yes. Every show was fucking, fr- where, what yeah. happened to this world? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's some, some, and that was, it's not like every club was free. You know, there was another big play. I mean, I saw the big bands I saw down there at the time. I went and saw pavement and I went and saw the grifters, both at a, band, a place called Liberty lunch. And I you had to pay there, but you know, like I was fucking broke. You know, I was waiting the overnight shift at Denny's um, and I had enough money to go to shows and drink, you know, sneak in Mickey's big mouth, little boy grenade bottle into the, into the venue. <laughs> I haven't drank one of those in 40. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, and like even the mention of it, I still physically go, oh, yeah, well, <laughs> I'm here to tell you it was not a, not a, not a, not too bad a vibe for me at the time, but oh, yeah, yes. to be fair, I haven't, I, I may be not drinking it these days, but I couldn't um, imagine what a Mickey's would feel like in my body. <laughs> like a grenade, which is why they were shaped like a grenade. <laughs> did you, did you meet Matt Meelan of the skeletons at Oberlin or was that later? I, I did not. He's a little later, but I actually, um, I met him through, I play in another band called new Pope and, uh, Clara Latham in that band and, and Mike Galopi went to Oberlin, I think with Matt or maybe a little bit after him. So, but they they knew him already and introduced me to him. He ended up releasing our. Um, I read that. Yeah, our, that's our why first I... record. And hopefully, the one coming out this year. That's the that's the plan. I'm actually playing with New Pope. Uh, what's today? Thursday. In a couple of days, down in New York. Oh, um, cool. So trying to do trying to get a, a few records out in a few different ways this year. <laughs> Through success. That's pretty goddamn <laughs> impressive. <laughs> Well, you know, we all had this pandemic and so everything kind of slowed down for a minute. Um, so it's, and it you know, kind of time to get back to work. Did it, uh, the pandemic kind of, cause you, Oneida was about to go in the studio, right? And didn't you get, yeah. like, you got majorly fucked? 
literally March 16th, 2020, we had a week booked um, with our friend Colin at his studio in Woodhaven in Queens. Um, and we had, you know, about four songs and then we were going to do work on a bunch of ideas in the studio. Cause his place is like a really conducive to, you know, to taking that kind of in studio creative approach. Um, and yeah, like everything just went and locked down so hard at that moment to the point where, you know, in retrospect, we were like, shit, we should have done it right? Like knowing what we know now, if you could go back, we absolutely should have done it, but we didn't have all the information. A bunch of us have kids and families and, you know, really had no idea what kind of jeopardy we'd be putting people in. Um, so we didn't. And that was, I don't actually regret it that much now because what it did is it meant that the stuff that we were going to work on had to sit and like, like smolder, you know? <laughs> and that was, uh, that was interesting. And then that ended up right before that, uh, or maybe now, I guess, I guess about a year before that we'd gone on tour in Europe. And I, I had a, at that time written a whole bunch of things that I'd never kind of returned to just sort of on tour. And so then when we were all, trying to figure out, you know, life in quarantine or lockdown or whatever, a lot of that stuff started coming back out. And I was like, Oh my God, I've found myself really, really super productive for a long time. Um, and that was cool. Like I, you know, anyone who does any kind of producing knows like it comes and goes right. It ebbs and flows. And when it's happening, it's like, you need to open every, every channel to it and just go with it. And I was like, I got to go with this while it's working. And then it just kept on going. And I don't know if that was the pandemic or just my own, you know, like rhythms. I have no idea, but, um, but it ended up being a really cool and productive experience. Uh, and it resulted in this album that is when we, we record we have like about 25 total, like demo recordings that we made. And then we picked a series of songs and worked on them in the studio. But, but it was like, we're never in that position. We're never like, we have way too much material to mess around with. Are you going to do something with the uh, other, the extra stuff? Maybe some of it, but we also are kind of working on new things too. So um, some of it, you know, some of it may just be water under the bridge, but that's also okay. Like there's been a lot of water under the bridge, you know, through the years, there's a lot of things that don't make the cut and we haven't ever really gotten to a point where we're, we're, we're like out of ideas. So it's, it's cool to let things go, you know, can always come back at some point in the future and be like, that one was pretty cool. Let's check it out. But who knows? Do you feel the album's different in any regard because you had that time to let it smolder? Um, it's definitely different and that's probably part of it, but I don't know. Uh, I'm hesitant to like stitch cause and effect together too tightly there. Um, it's the thing that surprised us all is that like the direction we ended up taking was this very, very straightforward direction. Like these songs came to life as like really simple, direct songs, you know, like, um, and that hasn't happened for us in a long time. 
Um, and it wasn't a like, let's sit down and write really simple direct songs. And it wasn't like they necessarily sounded exactly like that. A couple of them did, you know, at the sort of demo stage, but it's just like, you know, like the vocabulary that we're bringing to it is, is like informed by many, many years of playing and playing together. Um, but I don't know that if you hear it, it's immediately obvious that there's sort of a complexity, a history of, of stuff underneath it. They're really simple. Um, and I kind of, it was easy for us to, to honor that once we recognize it, be like, all right, cool. Like, we'll, you know, let's, let's push it forward this way. Um, and that was, I don't know why, but that's a lot of what we do. A lot of what we do, we don't know why, you know, we may have an idea and pursue it, but, um, it often goes off in a different direction. Um, it's like our own, you know, thuggishly simplistic version of like Eno's oblique strategies, right? Like pick, a, pick an idea or a direction or an instruction and follow it, but not with a, a, like a, a prescriptive understanding of the outcome of following it. <laughs> it's like, just do it and see what happens. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to this episode with Bobby Matador from Oneida. Please go to themattdwar.com, become a Patreon subscriber, and you can listen to the extra content from this episode. You could also watch the video and enjoy many, many, many more bonus content thingies from my interviews. Thanks for